Most of us have had the experience of going through something that when it's over, we look back and we'd wish we rather not had to go through that. Suffering often carries a certain mystery. We can sometimes describe suffering with adjectives such as meaningless, pointless, needless, senseless, unnecessary. But for Christians, those adjectives never truly apply. Because God is always directing the suffering of Christians. Passages like Romans 8.28 bring comfort when we think about our suffering. But my personal favorite verse that clearly communicates this truth is 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The suffering of Jesus obviously had a purpose. We quickly gravitate toward the benefits His suffering brought to us. But the Scriptures also speak of the benefits His suffering brought to Him. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. The author of Hebrews has much to say about the purpose and benefits of Jesus' suffering. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. God made Jesus perfect through suffering. Jesus' suffering in the face of temptation has enabled him to help those who are being tempted. The author of Hebrews also reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I have pondered that phrase in every respect many, many times over the years. I have often recognized that Jesus certainly experienced greater temptations than I have. He went toe-to-toe with Satan in the wilderness and came out unscathed. As far as I know, I've never dealt with Satan face-to-face. And since Jesus never gave in to sin, then whatever temptations He genuinely experienced, He never gave in the way that I have. But I used to think that there was a stark difference between temptation as Jesus experienced it and temptation as we regularly experience it. James tells us about the primary way we experience temptation. In James 1.14 we read, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He adds in verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I used to think, that Jesus could not have experienced this kind of temptation. Temptation that began inside his heart with his own desires. That's what I experience regularly. My desires for sinful things sometimes conceive and give birth to actual sin. And those desires themselves are sinful. However, sometimes I desire something that is good and right. And yet that good and right desire lures and entices me to do something sinful to get what I want. James's imagery covers both experiences. Having spent the past couple of weeks sitting with Jesus and His disciples in Gethsemane, particularly as Matthew has recounted the story, I now see that Jesus did indeed experience what James described in James 1.14. Jesus had a desire, a good and right desire, that lured and enticed Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. My study and meditation in these verses has helped me grow into a deeper appreciation of Jesus 
as the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. His good and right desire to avoid a violent and excruciating death, to escape bearing the wrath of his father, did not conceive sin. In fact, he learned obedience through what he suffered in Gethsemane. It is John alone among the gospel writers who labels Gethsemane as a garden. In doing so, he prompts his readers to connect what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane to what happened in the Garden of Eden. The story of suffering began in the Garden of Eden. And God set to work immediately, moving history toward a new Eden, where there will be no more suffering. But between the first Eden and the second Eden, where we live today, suffering endures, and we must endure suffering. Listen to one writer's reflection on this reality as he draws out a major lesson from what we witness in Gethsemane. The love hidden in the shadows of Gethsemane is not that the day will come when we will cease to suffer between the first Eden and the second Eden. It is that God suffers what we suffer and by doing so redeems not only our suffering, but much more redeems us. He never trivializes what breaks our hearts it put nails into him. There is no pain we wrestle with that he will scoff at. All the sin, suffering, and temptation we experience, all the misery that breaks us, it broke him too. The pain we deal with as victims, that pain Jesus took with him to the cross and bled it out. It is not just Darfur or 9-11 or the drug wars in Colombia he takes to the hilltop. It is you and me and our whole little world. We are entering the final hours of Jesus' life on earth. Last week we considered how he shared his last meal with his disciples. We saw Jesus identify Judas as his betrayer. We heard how he transformed the meal to celebrate Passover into a symbolic celebration for his disciples of what he was about to accomplish through his death on the cross. The new covenant is this close to being established. The wheels are turning toward the climax of the gospel. It's just after midnight. Good Friday has officially begun. We need to see Jesus in Gethsemane. The sermon title is borrowed from Pilate's words recorded uniquely in John's gospel. Behold the man. Look at the man in the garden. Not the first Adam in the first garden who brought ruin and suffering to all his offspring. No, look now at the last Adam in the garden of Gethsemane. His true and wondrous humanity is on display for us here like it is nowhere else in the Gospels. Behold the man. But first we need to consider the apostasy of the apostles in verses 31 to 35. Jesus announces that His remaining 11 disciples will all abandon Him within the next few hours, just as the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied. Matthew 26, 31-35 Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus recognizes how his Bible really is all about him. He quotes Zechariah 13, 7, indicating that it is about to be fulfilled this very night. The timing factor is the only thing that the prophet didn't specify. Jesus sees himself as the shepherd Zechariah spoke of. And the sheep of the flock refer to Jesus' disciples. Most Jews would read Zechariah's prophecy and see the sheep of the flock as a reference to Israel as a whole. And Jesus is not reading it any differently. He sees his followers as the new Israel, the one flock of God that Jesus, the good shepherd, has been regathering and establishing. Theologians sometimes refer to this as Jesus reconstituting the people of Israel, establishing the new people of God as all those who trust and obey him. Those who don't trust and obey Jesus regardless of whose blood runs in their veins or what ethnicity they claim or where they happen to live, are not Israel. The prophecy of Zechariah 13 is poetic. The Hebrew has Yahweh commanding His sword to strike the shepherd. Jesus rightly recognizes that this is simply a figure of speech, indicating that it is Yahweh Himself who will strike the shepherd. It's possibly indicating that He would use the sword of capital punishment. In the larger context of Zechariah's prophecies, we can certainly conclude that the striking of the shepherd will result in his death. However, Jesus recognizes that the striking of the shepherd will begin with his arrest. Thus, the scattering of the sheep that is to result from the striking of the shepherd will begin with the fleeing of the eleven disciples when Jesus is arrested. After Jesus quotes Zechariah 13:7, he again announces his resurrection. He may as well have been speaking a foreign language every time he said this to the disciples. The apostles never seem to register when he says, I will be raised, or God will raise me from the dead. It goes in one ear and out the other without landing. Nevertheless, here Jesus has highlighted the impending scattering of the apostles. Now he points to their regathering after resurrection. Their defection, their abandonment, their apostasy won't be permanent. He will arrive in Galilee ahead of them. And it is from there that he will commission them for the launch of the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. He already hints here at his forgiveness for their failure. At the Last Supper, Jesus identified Judas as the one who was about to betray him, as it was written in the Scriptures. Now Jesus points to all the rest of the apostles to indicate that they would all abandon him as it was written in the scriptures. Next, because of Peter's aggressive, self-defensive response to Jesus' announcement, he is going to specify how Peter is going to deny him three times. And as Matthew tells the rest of the story, we'll see the fulfillment of each one of these in the same order as Jesus indicated them. But Peter doesn't believe his master Jesus said, all of you will fall away tonight. And that all includes Peter. Prideful Peter. He even elevates himself above the other ten apostles. Suddenly we're back at Caesarea Philippi, where Peter had gone so far as to rebuke his Lord for indicating that he was going to be murdered. Peter said the word never then, too, back in Matthew 16. And Peter 
took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, again, arguing with his Lord, he says, I will never fall away. In Matthew 16, Jesus had addressed him as Satan, indicating whose side Peter was on by virtue of his opposition against Jesus. This time, he more sadly simply tells him what exactly is about to happen. Prideful Peter will shamefully, publicly deny, denounce, repudiate, claim he doesn't even know Jesus three times within the next few hours. I wonder if Peter could remember Jesus' strong warning recorded back in Matthew 10, 33. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter's thrice-repeated public denial of Jesus will certainly put him in danger of the wrath of God. Nevertheless, Jesus will see Peter in Galilee where forgiveness will be granted. And the only reason forgiveness will be granted is because Jesus, the good shepherd, will have been struck, executed, and raised from the dead. Jesus specifies how soon prideful Peter's fall is going to happen. It will happen before the rooster crows. The Jews divided the night into four watches. They're probably having this conversation shortly after midnight, which would have been the second watch of the night. The third watch of the night was sometimes referred to as cock crow. And it lasted roughly from midnight to three in the morning. Within three hours, Jesus says Peter will deny him three times. Jesus is not backing down on his prediction. Neither is Peter. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell puts it, before the cock crows at the end of the story, Peter hollers like a high-pitched peacock at the start of it. He goes further in verse 35, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. A sentiment the rest of the apostles are eager to agree with. Are we to hear in this bit a growth in understanding in Peter? Has he finally accepted the possibility that Jesus is, in fact, going to die? It seems that he has. Nevertheless, for the moment, he attempts to dig in his heels, reasserting his allegiance to Jesus. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, and as I'm sure you already know, Peter was wrong and Jesus was right. However, we could add here, as commentator David Turner notes, according to tradition, eventually Peter does choose to die rather than deny Jesus. The disciples here protest against Jesus' prophecy. Surely they could never be scattered away from their shepherd. They will remain faithful, come what may. But in the very next scene, we already see their devotion faltering. Let's look at verses 36 to 38, where we see the sorrow of the Son. Jesus is going to express his human need for communion with friends. In his hour of greatest need, when they still could actually be of service to him, what will become of their claims of loyalty? What will become of Peter's emphatic assurance? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
They've left Jerusalem and marched on out to the Mount of Olives. Now they enter a grove of olive trees, probably with a wall encircling it as a private garden owned by some friend of Jesus's. He leaves eight apostles, probably somewhere near the entrance of the garden, and he takes Peter, James, and John along with him. These three, again, are privileged to be close to Jesus for a unique experience. They were the only disciples to witness the transfiguration, perhaps the greatest revelation of Jesus' glory during his ministry years. Now, they are invited to be the only disciples to witness the darkest moments of Jesus' human struggle. James and John had very recently asked to sit on Jesus' right and left when he established his kingdom, and they claimed that they were prepared to drink his cup with him. And Peter, of course, just loudly and emphatically promised to remain faithful even if all the others abandoned Jesus. As one early church leader observed, he takes the three in order that those who saw the glories at the transfiguration also see the griefs at Gethsemane. Then both Matthew and Jesus refer to Jesus' emotional turmoil. When we pull in the other gospel accounts, we find a disturbing picture of Jesus. Matthew uses two words. The first, the ESV translates as sorrowful. It is normally expressive of grief and deep sadness. It is the word Matthew used to describe the disciples at the dinner table when Jesus announced one of them was going to betray him. The second, the ESV translates as troubled. One Greek dictionary explains the word this way, to be or become subject to extreme mental or spiritual anguish and distress, sometimes to the point of losing one's composure. It is classified as a word for extreme anxiety. Some of you need to hear this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, our Savior, experienced overwhelming, unhinging, crippling anxiety. Mark utilizes another term to describe Jesus' emotional turmoil. In addition to being troubled, we read in Mark 14.33 that Jesus was greatly distressed. In the New Testament, only Mark uses this word. He will use it again to describe the emotional reaction of the women who find Jesus' tomb occupied by an angel instead of Jesus' dead body. Stacked on top of this emotion, which the ESV translates in Mark 16, 5, as alarmed of the women, we read that they leave with trembling and astonishment. And the last words of Mark's gospel are most likely found in Mark 16, 8, for they were afraid. All the other gospel accounts use several words for fear to describe the women there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced fear. All of us need to see this. Gerald Peterman, a professor at Moody Bible Institute, writes, Jesus is in painful emotional distress, which comes from a certain dread, a type of fear, and that this dread is rational, and virtuous. Most commentators on Mark's gospel affirm this understanding of Jesus' emotion here. Jesus experienced fear. One writer even described it as a shuddering horror. One student in Scripture translates it in Mark as sudden fear came over him. And he adds that the Greek word was used of a man who is rendered helpless, disoriented, 
who is agitated and anguished by the threat of some approaching event. C.S. Lewis reflected on Jesus' experience in Gethsemane once. He wrote, He chose on that night to plumb the depths of Christian experience to resemble not the heroes of His army, but the very weakest camp followers and unfits. We might say misfits. I've chosen to drift over to the Gospel of Mark to make sure that we see this word because I think there are many of us who need to recognize that the human emotion of fear is not always sinful. Even our Savior experienced rising fear in the face of an unimaginably horrible experience. What matters more is how He responded to that fear. There may be an important connection here when we also remember that this fear is being experienced in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, humanity experiences fear for the first time after they sinned. When God showed up in the garden, they were afraid, and so they hid from God. Jesus experiences fear, perhaps for the first time in His life, but instead of hiding from God, He runs to His Father in prayer. And when Adam and Eve come out from their sinful, from their fearful hiding, when they speak to God, they immediately look for someone to blame for their failure. The last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane is not ashamed of his emotions. And he approaches his father in earnest prayer. Behold the man. Before he approaches his heavenly father, he wants his closest friends to stay near him. Thus, in verse 38, he adds his own testimony of how he's feeling. He tells Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Here, he borrows the psalmist's language from Psalms 42 and 43, the familiar refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Like the psalmist, Jesus is about to experience violent oppression from his enemies, including mocking and taunting. The word for very sorrowful paints a vivid picture of grief as a kind of bubble completely surrounding and encompassing a person. As one writer puts it, a rough paraphrase of Jesus' words would then be, I am so overwhelmed with sorrow that it's killing me. This writer adds, such was his humanity. His heart is about to break with grief. At this point, Jesus' feelings are very low and He is deeply disturbed. Behold the man. We remember the stories of martyrs who faced death with such courage. We stand in awe of them. And we hope that should we be executed for our faith in Jesus, we might approach the final moments with poise and even defiance. But Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, shows forth His complete humanity admitting to his closest friends that he is coming unglued. Unlike our anxiety, which so often fixates on future possibilities, the terrors our imagination can conjure up, which very rarely actually match what we will experience, Jesus knows exactly what he is about to experience. He has read his Bible carefully and understood it rightly and sees how the events of his life have been mapped out before him, particularly the events of his final days. Interestingly, however, he has often spoken of his upcoming death without so much emotion. And he will leave the garden of Gethsemane resolute. Like us, 
His emotions change depending on what he is focused on, what he is thinking about. And we're about to find out exactly what Jesus, what has got Jesus so disturbed. But don't miss the validation of our human struggles here. He gives himself permission to feel his grief and his fear to the depths. He expresses deep emotional pain. You and I should do that as well. Even the expression of fear can be a good and godly, even Christ-like experience. Jerry Falwell Sr. once said of Jesus, He never yielded to sin, nor was he at any time susceptible to injury or harm or hurt from anything, mortal or otherwise. What I'm sure was intended as pious praise is closer to blasphemy. Blasphemy of the Son of Man, which God does forgive. But let's not follow Falwell's lead here. The first part we can agree with, Jesus never yielded to sin, but the rest of Falwell's statement is just garbage. Jesus was injured, harmed, hurt, not only by the terrible crucifixion he was soon to face, but he also experienced emotional suffering of a depth you and I will never reach. One writer captures what we're seeing here so very well. He writes, In the garden, Jesus was in the dark, and he was afraid of the dark. This creates an instant bond with each of us. We too have been in the dark and been afraid there. We have been in the dark and suffered there. If Jesus has been there, then we have someone who comprehends what others sometimes can't. The heaviness in such black holes, the anxiety, the anger, the weakness, the claustrophobia, the inability to focus, the inability to believe, the aloneness, the lostness, the hopelessness, the loss of margins and boundaries and purpose. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, the writer of Hebrews declares, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It is in his anguish that he instructs Peter, James, and John to remain here and watch with me. Note those words, with me. John MacArthur almost commits the same blasphemy as Falwell when he so strongly asserts, Jesus did not take them along in order to have their companionship, sympathy, or help. He loved them deeply and doubtlessly enjoyed their company, but he knew them far too well to expect them to be of any assistance to him in this crucial hour. He took them along for their benefit, not his. No, absolutely not. Jesus wanted human companionship. Jesus needed his friends. Even though he just announced that they are all going to abandon him, that's not going to happen until the striking of the shepherd begins. It will be as a result of the betrayer's arrival and the arrest of Jesus that the apostles will apostatize, that the disciples will desert him. But here, now, before the betrayer arrives, he hopes to lean on his brothers. Sadly, they will fail him even before they abandon him. What has driven Jesus to such grief, despair, and terror? In verses 39 to 44, we witness Jesus' famous threefold prayer where he wrestles with whether to drink or not to drink. It is his consideration of the cup that so threatens to unravel Jesus. Let's take in the whole picture, verses 39 to 44. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Earlier that night, Jesus had focused the disciples' attention on a cup at the Last Supper. This was the cup of redemption for the disciples, the cup he shared with them in anticipation of his establishing the new covenant with his blood by his death so that they might be counted among the many for whom his blood would be poured out, the many whose sins would be forgiven. But now... Jesus agonizes over the cup he can't share with his disciples, the cup being handed to him by his Father, the cup of God's wrath. Yes, as he said at the supper table, the cup contains his blood, his blood. Now he looks into that cup. He sees his own blood, and he takes in the full weight of how his blood is going to get in that cup. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of Yahweh there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This cup is for the wicked. How now shall the sinless Son of God drink that cup? Can you pretend for just a moment that you're a spectator watching this unfold on a stage. When I put myself in that position, I want to jump out of my seat and scream, No! Not Jesus! Don't let Him drink that cup! That cup is for the wicked! And Jesus is not wicked. He is not among the wicked. He does not deserve to drink this cup. And here in the garden we learn that Jesus does not want to drink it. He addresses God so intimately. My Father, he says. Mark lets us know that he used the Aramaic term Abba. Unlike Adam, he's not hiding his dread. He's asking his Father to do something about it. He begins his desperate plea with the words, If it be possible. He doesn't dare demand. He doesn't dare decree and declare. No, the sinless Son of God submits the knowledge of what is possible completely to His Father. Earlier, He had told His disciples, with God, all things are possible. Is there an exception to that all things? No. But there are different ways of thinking about what is possible. There's what is possible based on God's power. God's omnipotence, even the otherwise impossible salvation of sinners is possible because of God's power 
That was Jesus' point when he said those words back in Matthew 19. But here Jesus is asking about what is possible based on God's plan. Jesus is not asking whether his father has the power to rescue him from death. Of course he does. He'll even comment on this truth in the face of his arrest in order to correct Peter again. This prayer request is such a wonderfully human prayer request. Faced with the prospect of a horrifically violent death, who wouldn't ask to be spared? But more than this, Jesus is asking His Father if there is any any way to not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. For all of eternity, He has only ever experienced fellowship and joy and love between Him and His Father. He has never, ever been the object of His Father's displeasure. His Father has never been disappointed or angry with Him. Even though Jesus has repeatedly and plainly stated that He was going to be betrayed, abused, and executed without the faintest hint to His disciples that there was any possibility that things could turn out different, here, in His appeal to His Father, He wonders about the possibility that there might be a plan B that the Father hasn't told Him about. Is there any other way for him to accomplish the mission? The specific request is, let this cup pass from me. This is what Jesus wants. The word pass is important. When we remember that it's Passover, and when we remember that Jesus has already connected his impending death with Passover, we can see the significance of his request. Jesus is asking to experience Passover, that God's wrath might pass over Him. God spared the firstborn sons of Israel all those years ago in Egypt. Could God now spare His own firstborn son? But then Jesus adds, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane does what the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, refused to do. Adam and Eve essentially said to God, not as you will, but as we will. We will do what we want, not what you want. Thus, humanity and all creation fell and broke. Now a man, now a man in a garden chooses to submit to God's will, to do what God wants. I love how commentator Dale Bruner explains what's happening here. He writes... Jesus told the Father the honest truth about His present want. If possible, please take this cup away. But then He prayed with equal ardor, but the main thing I want is not what I want. It is what you want. This raises an interesting question. Does Jesus not know what God's will is? I'm sure He does. He knows His Bible so well, and He knows His Father so well. He just pointed to Zechariah's prophecy of Yahweh striking the shepherd. In the midst of his prayer in Gethsemane, Jesus is not seeking new information. Rather, he is wrestling through his emotions. Now that the moment comes so near, the realization of all that is betrayal, arrest, torment, and crucifixion is going to be like, overwhelms him. And he allows himself to be overwhelmed by it. He prays. He asks for a reprieve. He is learning obedience by what he suffered. 
at this moment, he gets up from the ground and he goes to see Peter, James, and John. Why? Well, the Gospels don't tell us what he was intending to say to them. Instead, he finds them sleeping. It is past midnight. It has been a long day, coming near the end of a long week. They just had a filling meal, and Jesus had said some distressing things to them. It makes sense that they'd be asleep. Except, Jesus had commanded them to remain here and watch with me. Watch means keep alert and stay awake. As understandable as their nap is, they have received a command from their master, and they are not excused. As Bruner points out, the language is military. He writes, Jesus had commanded a night watch. The disciples flat out disobeyed. In the military, this is sometimes ground for execution. Jesus wakes them and asks them, Could you not watch with me one hour? Now remember, they don't have wristwatches. He's probably not indicating that he's been laying on the ground praying for exactly 60 minutes. Could have been longer. Could have been shorter. That's not the point. He reiterates his instructions to them and specifically commands them to pray. Luke's account seems to indicate that he had already told them to watch and pray when they first arrived at the garden. Nevertheless, here he indicates that they need to pray so that they will not enter into temptation. He's already warned all the disciples that they are going to fall away this very night. This in and of itself should have been a call to prayer. I have certainly fallen asleep while praying. Anyone else? Now for them, prayer was almost always out loud and with eyes open. But I've even fallen asleep while praying out loud. So the act of praying is not necessarily going to prevent them from falling asleep. But Jesus says they need to pray as a preventive measure from entering into temptation. That sounds like the way he taught them to pray back in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Luke's Gospel had told us that Jesus had told Peter and the rest of them that Satan wanted to sift them like wheat. Satan had asked permission to so afflict the disciples that their faith would be sifted out completely. And Jesus told them that he had prayed for them so that their faith would not utterly fail. Here, he adds that they still need to pray. When the betrayer shows up in a matter of minutes, how will the disciples respond? Will they be prepared? Will they respond with trusting acceptance of what Jesus has told them is going to happen? We shall see. Jesus then adds, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to be careful about importing the way Paul uniquely uses the word flesh in a significantly negative way. Jesus most likely merely intends to comment on the weakness of their tired bodies. The disciples have expressed the eagerness of their spirits in their verbal commitment to certainly not deny him. Peter especially. But here he is, moments before the test comes, dozing. After such brash claims of loyalty, these three close friends of Jesus are proving no more helpful in his hour of need than Job's three friends. Their good intentions are doing Jesus no good. Thus, he turns away from them and returns to his father. 
In his second petition, we need to observe the development in his prayer. In verse 42, we read, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Before, he had asked, Let this cup pass from me. Now, he simply asks for God's will to be done. Again, reflecting the way he taught his disciples to pray. The language of possibility recurs here. Literally, he says, My father, if it is not possible for this to pass unless I drink it. While Jesus now considers that the cup won't pass over him, he recognizes that it still needs to pass over some. The cup of God's wrath is being passed around the table of humanity full of deadly poison, eternally deadly poison. And all the wicked must drink from the cup. However, God's Son has come to take a seat at the human table. And now the cup is being passed to Him. If He drinks the poison from the cup, that means that others won't have to drink it. The cup may pass over some without their having to drink it themselves because Jesus will have drunk the portion that they deserved. Notice that Jesus' will has shifted since the first petition. This time He does not ask not to drink the cup. He's coming to accept, emotionally accept, that God's will, God's unchangeable plan, certainly and irrevocably includes Him drinking that cup so that it might pass over His people, all who would trust Him to drink it for them. Your will be done. To hear Jesus pray those words to His heavenly Father in this circumstance motivates me to accept and desire God's will to be done in every circumstance of my life, regardless of how painful for me. Jesus knows His Father's will. Perhaps it was most clearly expressed in Isaiah's song of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53.10 says quite plainly, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And that fits with Zechariah 13.7, where it's Yahweh who strikes the shepherd. Yes, the sheep will be scattered, but only temporarily. The stricken shepherd, the crushed servant, will rise from the dead and regather his scattered sheep. Yes, Jesus must drink the cup. And he's coming to terms with all that that entails. He turns again to go see his sleepy disciples. And sure enough, he finds them fast asleep. Matthew and Mark both explained that their eyes were heavy. The flesh is weak indeed. Mark also indicates at this point that they didn't know how to answer him. So he apparently awakened them again, though Matthew doesn't mention it. Luke tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow... This has been an emotionally heavy evening for the disciples too. Nevertheless, by accepting His Father's will, by pursuing obedience to His Father's will, even the hard obedience of drinking the cup of God's wrath, of death on a cross, Jesus made possible the restoration of Eden, an existence devoid of grief and sin and destruction, but brimming with joy and goodness and unending, untarnished life, as one writer puts it. Thus, Jesus returns to address His Father one last time. 
You can almost see his resolve increase each time. When he arrived at Gethsemane, he was undone, unhinged. In the midst of his praying, as Luke tells us, an angel appeared to strengthen him. And after he was strengthened by this angel, famously, his sweats, sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Commentator James Edwards comments, Jesus' inner torment manifests itself in physical trauma. Dripping blood would be expected to describe the crucifixion, but no blood attends that narrative. The most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane in his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus' soul is crucified. On the Mount of Calvary, his body is surrendered. So then, it is time. The hour has come. Once more, he returns to wake the disciples. Look at verses 45 and 46. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus' first words to the disciples in verse 45 could be translated as a question, as in the ESV footnote. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? In either case, Jesus is expressing his frustration and disappointment with Peter, James, and John his closest friends. They should have been praying instead of sleeping. He was not comforted by his friends. This is probably why God sent an angel to strengthen him. For Peter, these three naps do not bode well. Jesus already told him that he is going to deny Jesus three times before the night is over. Jesus has found Peter and the others sleeping three times, disobeying his command to watch and pray. Note the parallel phrases in these verses. See the hour is at hand in verse 45 and see my betrayer is at hand in verse 46. The fundamental summary of the preaching of Jesus and the apostles in Matthew's gospel has been the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it is that the kingdom arrives as the kingdom is betrayed, as the king is betrayed. He tells the disciples to get up and I suspect he can see in the distance Judas leading the mob to come arrest him. Jesus will lead Peter, James, and John back to the other eight disciples just as Judas arrives. When he says, let us be going, there's no hint of him seeking to escape. No, he's leading them toward the approaching mob. As one writer says, for all his struggle in the garden, there is none of it remaining once he has been hustled out the gate. Resolute, he faces taunts and jeers and whips and nails. Immovable, he stands before earthly powers, religion in the form of the Sanhedrin, empire in the form of Pilate and Rome, monarchy in the form of Herod, majority rule in the form of the mob that shouts for his death. He is unflinching. He has made his choice. He's ready to drink the cup. John Calvin wrote, commenting on this passage, These words reveal that since his prayer, he has found new reserves of arms. Now his fears are allayed and his nerves are mastered. Now again to offer a willing sacrifice to the Father. Behold the man.
The author of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every respect as we are, but he did not sin. Paul tells us that he knew no sin. I think the late David Stern's complete Jewish Bible captures Paul's intent in 2 Corinthians 5.21 really well. God made this sinless man be a sin offering on our behalf. Similarly, Paul says in Romans 3.25 that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Or as Isaiah 53 has it, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Yahweh has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. In all of this, Jesus was nothing less than a man. Yes, He is truly God at the same time. But we cannot miss or minimize His humanity. Dale Bruner writes, Take away Jesus' humanity, and you take away humanity's salvation. Gethsemane's emotions do not shame Jesus' humanity. They prove it. They tell us that Jesus drank our cup to the leads, to the dregs, that He really was one of us, that He knew what it was to suffer, to be down, and in some ways even out. Might we reverently say in this introduction to Gethsemane, with its carefully chosen words for Jesus' emotions and mind, that Jesus knew what it was to be emotionally crushed and mentally crazy, at least for a while. This would mean that Jesus knows what we go through at our limits. And knows this not just divinely, but also humanly. God required a sinless man to undo the sin of man. One writer paints the big picture for us. In Eden, there was a choice. In Gethsemane, there is a choice. If there's going to be a second Eden, if God is going to dwell with humanity, if human exile is going to end, then it is going to happen here or not at all. Jesus makes the choice to be or not to be the Passover lamb in this garden on this night. The decision in Gethsemane will undo the decision in Eden. In Eden, those who represented humanity failed the test. In Gethsemane, the one who represented humanity did not. In Eden, the innocent were corrupted. In Gethsemane, the innocent died for the corrupted. Don't trust in your own faith the way Peter seemed to do. Trust in this man. Trust in Jesus. Jesus prayed as He resolved His own feelings about completing the mission His heavenly Father had sent Him for. He prayed honestly, emotionally, and as He prayed, His resolve to remain obedient to God grew. He learned obedience through what He suffered. You and I sometimes may have to learn obedience that way too. So, when you're depressed, when you're ready to pull your hair out because of your fear or because of your pain, don't hide from God. Run to Him. Call on your Father. If you've trusted Jesus, you are a child of God. 
and He will hear you. You can be brutally honest with God about your fears, about your hurts, and about your pain. Jesus echoes the refrain of Psalm 42 in His expression of emotional turmoil. I close with the final words of that psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for sending Your Son to become one of us. Thank You for this glimpse into our Savior's heart where we see His human heart beating for us, where we see Him moving into the depths of human experience, the emotional turmoil that we so often experience and don't know what to do with. He knows it. He knows it by experience. Would you help us to draw close to ourselves?